Where do your allegiances lie? Do you put your politics or your culture before Jesus? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and, uh, and today I'm joined by my very special guest, Patrick Miller, one of the co-hosts of the Truth Over Tribe podcast in the States. Patrick and his co-host Keith Simon are pastors and authors. They've written for Christianity Today and their new book, which is what we're talking about, is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. As pastors, they I'm quoting now from their publicity. As pastors, they lead a... I'd always like to get this in in case I get into trouble. As pastors, <laughs> they lead a politically, racially, and culturally diverse church. End of quote. But how do they minister in the States in such a politically and culturally charged moment in history? For surely it is a politically and culturally charged moment for all of us. Patrick, hi. Welcome to the show. Oh, Brent, thank you for having me on the show today. It's fantastic to be with you. I'm excited to talk about this topic and get to connect with your audience. Yes, and it's great uh, that we have you here and thank you for joining us. Now, before we come to uh, anything else, you better tell us what the Truth Over Tribe podcast is. <laughs> That's a fantastic question. So our podcast really came uh, out of questions that we were being asked. Now, I don't know if everybody is experiencing this across the globe, but 10 years ago, if someone came to me as a pastor and they had a deep, profound question, it might be something like, why do you baptize infants? Can we talk about God's sovereignty and how that works out with human free will? These were the kinds of questions that we were used to getting. But starting about four, five, six years ago, the questions began to change. People were asking us questions about cultural issues, about political topics, about justice. And in some ways, we were ill-prepared for the moment. And we realized that we hadn't done a fantastic job discipling people in their politic, in the way in which they interact with the world. When I say discipling them in their politic, I'm not saying training them to be a donkey or an elephant. I'm saying how to live in accordance with the kingdom of God. And so that's why we started this podcast was we wanted to have a podcast where we could ask some of those questions. We could talk to some of the best, brightest minds in the world about topics on which they were experts and explore how do we live out a kingdom of God politic in our lives. Yeah, what are some of the difficulties you have with the divisions in in the states at the moment, and how do you pastor a very diverse church in your area? Well, it's become increasingly difficult. You know, in in our context in Missouri, um, Missouri is what you would call a a red state. In other words, it is primarily Republican. But we live in a college town which is primarily liberal or Democrat, and so we're a little blue dot in a big red state. And that means that at our church, we have a lot of cross cutting relationships. We can expect that people coming from the university are more liberal in their politics. We can expect people coming from the county and the environs are more Republican in their politics. And so from the start, when this church began in 2000, we had Republicans and Democrats in the same church together. And so we always had to figure out how do we worship together? How do we stay in the same small groups together? How do we love one another, listen to one another, learn from one another? But this has become increasingly difficult, especially in the States since 2016 with the watershed moment of Donald Trump's presidency, followed by 2020 with a pandemic, another a very difficult presidency, and obviously the murder of George Floyd and the racial issues that that brought up. And so all of these things, again, have kind of converged to create a, a greater challenge. Let me tell you a little story that maybe illustrates this. The weekend after George Floyd was murdered, uh, we received messages on Facebook saying that if you don't say anything about George Floyd in this sermon, I'm going to leave the church. Now, we had already planned on saying something because the Apostle Paul taught, taught us to mourn with those who mourn. And Jesus said, blessed are the mourners. And we realized that we had people in our congregation who were mourning something. And so 
We needed to say something. But guess what? When we said that thing, we got the different set of emails right afterwards. Everybody reaching out to us saying, you said that all police are, are racist. Now, we never said anything like that, but it just highlights how difficult it is to try to walk a kingdom path. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn with those who mourn, in a culture that thinks that that's one side or the other, depending on the debate. Yes, we've just been joined by my co-host, uh, the Reverend Ian Reid. Ian, hi to you. Ian of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. So he's here with Patrick. and um, We've just started talking about tribalism, and I'm going to ask Patrick, how have... How has the states and indeed the West, for we partake of this problem also, uh, how have we reached such a politically char and culturally charged moment in history, do you think? Oh, I think that's a fantastic question. And it's, it's a question I actually like to ask my elders, and I believe you're older than me, so you might have a better answer. <laughs> You've done the research, I see, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I like to ask it because I often find myself wondering, is today really any worse than what it was in the past, in the 60s, for example? Because if you go pack into uh, some of the very earliest presidential elections, for example, the election between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, it's one of the first American presidential elections. And uh, during this election, it was incredibly contentious. And they said, awful things about each other. Um, you know, John Adams is pointing at Thomas Jefferson saying that if you vote for this guy, everybody's going to be sleeping with prostitutes, we'll become a godless country. I mean, just mean stuff. And the other way around. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, he was called a nutmeg dealer, which is a, a word for a con man back in uh, the 1800s. And so polarization, I mean, we had a civil war in the United States and many other countries in the West have experienced uh, similar things. So polarization isn't necessarily anything new. What I have discovered talking to my elders is that what we're experiencing now does feel new, at least in living memory, at least since the 60s. And I would point to a number of things. I think it's the, the loss of capital T truth. That, that's part of what's causing polarization. I believe it's, it's also uh, the lack of social capital, which is basically your wealth and human relationships. It's big tech in the way that technology is changing the ways that we communicate and the way algorithms are causing and creating outrage within communities. Um, and I think it's also the human brain. I think the human brain is, is, is wired in many ways to actually be tribal. And so all of these things have converged. There have been a confluence of events and situations to make this particular moment polarized in a unique fashion. I think we find that it goes back in American history, right back to the 1820s almost, where the uh, the parties were as equally divided and the, the popular mm -hmm. press was, was almost as equally divisive as it sometimes can be today. It's fascinating. Now, what do you mean by tribalism, though? Can you give us a definition? <laughs> People always ask me that. And you'd think after writing a book on tribalism and being asked that question multiple times, I'd have an answer down pat. Tribalism is a little bit difficult to define. And I say it for this reason, because I, I don't think any human can escape tribalism. Now, that, that might sound a little counterintuitive, especially as a Christian, so I can lean into that. But here's my basic definition. Tribalism is, is, is anything in your life that creates a us versus them mentality. Tribalism, a different way of framing that, is, is when we find ourselves identifying with one group in a negative sense to the expense or at the expense of a different group. Now, I think that Christians, we are a part of a tribe, the Jesus tribe. What makes our tribe unique is that we are the only tribe in human history that anyone is welcomed into, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your national status or wealth. We are, we are the tribe everybody's welcomed into, and we're the only tribe that was called by our leader to put other tribes before ourselves. 
So this is a very unique, strange tribe that we're a part of. So we don't have the us versus them thing, or we shouldn't. We have had it in our history, but we ought not have it. So, so that's that's my that's my that's my very uh, unprofessional definition. It's it is it is a difficult thing to define. How does tribalism, I wonder, shut down debate and mm-hmm. shut down growth? It, yeah. I, again, what I've discovered, you know, it's funny. We, we live in a time that values authenticity. Uh, we 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 think that one of the best things you can do is be true to yourself to uh, be authentic to whether it's your sexual desires or your um, or, or your personality. Um, what I don't hear people talking much about is intellectual authenticity, that I ought to be true to what I believe or what I think. And I think one of the reasons is that if you're going to be honest about what you believe and what you think, you're going to cause offense. Because guess what? There's going to be lots of people around you who think differently. And, and that's exactly what tribalism causes. It makes us intellectually inauthentic. It makes us dishonest. You know, uh, if you think about Galileo Galley, you know, here, here's a guy <laughs> who, who is, uh, has a different conception of, of how the universe works. He believes that the earth is going around the sun. He's not the first person to say this. Uh, and yet, if he, had, if he had been a part of a, a tribe, uh, the Catholic tribe in this instance, and he had committed himself to not saying anything that offends the tribe, we may very well still be living in a, a conception of reality where the sun is revolving around the earth and the earth is not revolving around the sun. And so when we, when we can't be honest, we shut down conversation. And as a result, we all get more stupid. That, that, that's, that's the end result. That's why we should want, because here's the deal. Even if you're wrong, you should allow someone to say the wrong thing because absolutely. it will become obvious how wrong it is. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Freedom of speech. I'm all for it. Now, you've had a particular experience with uh, a local school, I think. You mentioned it in your book, uh, tr- and it's, it's all tied up with cinnamon rolls. And this experience str- struck me as uh, as being uh, a common one that pastors have around, uh, and I've had it myself in New Zealand. How did that experience reflect the polarization in your community? Oh, I, I, I could tell several stories about polarization in our community and how our, we're, we're in a smaller town, 150,000 people, how, how our community has changed as a result of polarization in the last few years. But you brought up the Sin Mineral story, so I'll, <laughs> I'll share it briefly. <laughs> so my co-author, Keith Simon, he is also a pastor here in the same town. We work at the same church. And during the pandemic, there is a local bakery that employs people with uh, mental and physical disabilities. And as a result of COVID, the shutdowns, they were going to have to shut down the bakery. They're going to have to shut down their coffee shop, and they're going to have to let all these people go. So as a church, we thought, well, this is terrible. We want to support this business. We want to support their amazing mission. And so we came up with this kind of wonky, quirky idea. We thought we're going to just buy a ton of cinnamon rolls from them. And we'll send those cinnamon rolls to teachers because at the beginning of the pandemic, teachers were some of the hardest hit people. They're trying to lead Zoom classes. They don't know how to lead Zoom classes. It was incredibly challenging. And so that's what we did. We bought cinnamon rolls. We sent them off to teachers. It's going great. Teachers are writing notes back saying, thank you so much. And there's nothing Christian about these. We don't have, you know, a little Jesus flag on every single cinnamon roll. It was just a, it was just a box of cinnamon rolls that said, hey, we appreciate what you're doing in our community from the crossing, our church. Now, this went great until it reached one particular middle school. And when it reached the middle school, the uh, principal wrote us a note and said, hey, I'm really sorry. I can't accept your cinnamon rolls. Uh, could, could you please take them back? Or, or could I pay for them and I'll just give them to my, my staff team? And the reason why was because we in 
uh, gosh, October of 2019. So just before the pandemic, we're preaching through Genesis. And we got to that, you know, rather troublesome passage about male and female. And we had a message about uh, the fact that according to the Bible, all God, God has created genders as two immutable genders. And, and the message was not an anti-trans uh, sermon. It was a message about, yes, God has an intention for uh, gender and we need to honor it. And yet let's love our trans neighbors. Let's show them honor and dignity and care. But I don't think the principal listened to it. So he rejected our cinnamon rolls. Now, my co-host, when this happened, it was a little bit surprising. We got canceled over cinnamon rolls. Uh, it said, happens, you know what, brother. It happens. <laughs> he said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to send them a note. And, and he reached out to the principal and asked him to grab lunch. So they got lunch, they got pizza, they started talking and they both realized that they weren't as bad as they thought. The, the principal realized that we are not a fundamentalist church teaching a message of hate. And my friend, Keith, the fellow pastor, he learned that the principal was just trying to honor and defend one of his teachers who was concerned about this. And so in many ways, they were both trying to do the right thing. Now, that's a story where polarization actually through relationship uh, becomes decompressed. <laughs> the temperature goes down. But we've had lots of other stories where polarization has not been decompressed, where the temperature has actually gone up. And what we've seen in our community is that we used to be a very diverse community politically. We could see people coming across uh, political boundaries and building bridges. And that's really come to a close over the last few years. And it's it's really been sad for our community. Who wants to live in that world? I don't want to live in that world. I'm going to live in a world where I can be with diverse people. Mm. Uh, Ian, are you there? Can you hear me? Do you want to comment into the New Zealand context, please? I am here. I'm just in the car, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no, don't, 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 you're fine, brother. You're fine. You're here with us. That's the main thing. Do you want to do you want to comment on this in New Zealand, in the New Zealand context? Yeah, yeah I think um, New Zealand is, is similar but dissimilar in some ways. I think we're quite further along the road of secularism and so that then potentially America. So we're getting probably more one side of the argument more than others, particularly around free speech. Uh, but it has, there is, particularly in the church, some deep uh, kind of polarisation as well. I don't know. What's your experience, Brent? Yes. Well, I mean, I think uh, because we are probably, a, um, a, can I say, a far more secular country than the States would appear to be from our position at any rate outside, from our, as outsiders, that we, we tend to have one particular view, social political view, pushed at us. And it's very difficult to actually express any alternative opinion. <laughs> Was, would you say that's right? Yeah, the, I think particularly the discussion around free speech um, in New Zealand is getting pushed quite harder. And if you want to even push, like you're saying, you want to push back on some things, even if you want to do it really gently uh, and carefully and cautiously and uphold people's human dignity, uh, you still get cancelled. Like kind of, there's kind of, it's a very, very fraught kind of spot to be in. Even if you, you don't want to be the fundamentalist, you know, kind of pushing a hard line, I think you just want to be very gentle. It's a, it's a very hard kind of space to be in at the moment. Yes. Patrick, how has our society come to this position? Why, why is it that we've become so intolerant? Mm. Well, I, I think there's a number of reasons, and, and there's a lot of great books outside of ours that I think are worth reading to explore this topic. One of those, by the way, is The Coddling of the American Mind, which I realize is focused on America, but speaks to, to some of these 
issues. I, I think that part of this has to do with the way in which a, a particular ideology, and right now it's an ideology on the left, so I'm not just swinging at the left. I, I can swing at the right too if I want to. Uh, but there's a particular ideology on the left which believes that any speech which causes you discomfort is tantamount to violence. And because it's tantamount to violence in their mind, ending that speech is tantamount to defending someone's right to life. And so what you'll see, and this really began on college campuses, uh, was protest at bringing in often right-wing speakers and protesting that allowing these people to speak was causing them some form of physical or mental harm. Now, I don't want to minimize. Words really can hurt people, but there is a difference between a word that hurts me and a fist that hurts me. And again, one of my concerns when it comes to free speech in general is that bad ideas are often defeated by free speech. Mm -hmm. I do not see free speech as as a as as a as a absolute moral right especially as a christian i actually don't have the moral right to say anything that i want to say god puts lots of limits on my speech i do however see free speech as an instrumental right it's a right that allows us to discover truth and to seek truth and to debate truth and without that instrumental right we cannot live in a uh, pluralistic society where there's a public square where people with different perspectives can bring their ideas to bear on whatever topic we're discussing. And so again, there, there's one particular ideology right now. And again, we could go back 10, 15 years and censorship was coming from a different direction. <laughs> so it's, it's not a left or right thing, but right now it is largely coming from the left and it's coming from a social justice men mentality. And I think we really have to push back because again, what, what I find fascinating is that without free speech, at least in these states, you don't have the Civil Rights Act. You don't have Martin Luther King being able to march. You don't have the freedom of the press to be able to show the stories of police officers firing fire hydrant or fire hoses at these protesters. Free speech has been integral to the success of almost every social justice cause. So saying that I should not have free speech to defend my social justice rights, to not be harmed or hurt, is really a sign of fragility. It's not a sign of having a cause that's worth defending. Yes. How is social media dividing us? do you think? Oh, that's a great question. And, and it's funny. I, I think people are becoming increasingly aware of how this, hap of how this is happening. Uh, but, but what I like to point out to people is, or I start with this question, how much do you pay to use Google? Nothing. <laughs> how much do you pay to use Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? Well, again, the answer is nothing. And yet these are some of the wealthiest corporations in the world. So how do they make money? And the answer is really simple. They sell ads to advertisers. Now, why do these advertisers want to sell ads? Well, it's because Facebook and Google and all of these companies have an amazing service. They are able to take your ad as an advertiser and put you right in front of the exact person who wants to buy your thing. That's how well they know you. Now, they know you by creating a model of you. I, I kind of joke that it's almost this Psalm 139 thing, right? The algorithm has searched us and known us, and it has woven us together in its silicon womb. That, that's, what, that's what it has done, and it's created these models. It's, it's so a that scary it Psalm, isn't it? <laughs> when you read that Psalm, it's so scary. <laughs> oh, it's incredibly scary. Yeah, I was actually talking about, about this with my wife last night. She's like, was, I always tell people, your phone's not listening to you. It, it, you think it is because the AI is so smart that it's predicting what you want, oftentimes before you know that you want it. And I find that far more frightening than my phone listening to me. Um, it, but that, that's, that's the point that I'm trying to illustrate. Now, how does this relate to polarization? Well, look, here's the deal. Facebook, Google, these companies, they can't sell you ads. 
They can't sell you ads unless you are on their platforms. And they've discovered that the best way to keep you on their platforms where they can surveil you and create this model of you and learn about you and sell ads to advertisers that are coming to you, the best way to keep you on is sex and emotion. And the one emotion that keeps you most engaged, even more than sex, which is fascinating, is outrage and anger. They've learned that if they can keep you angry, they can keep you on there. Now, this all sounds like some evil, you know, scientific plot by an evil genius, and it's not. It's, it's algorithms. They literally designed the AI to keep people on the platform. And so all the AI is asking, all the artificial intelligence is asking through its machine learning is what keeps people on here? And it discovered over time, oh, the more outrageous, the more outraged, the more polarized content is, the more likely someone is to stay on here. No one said feed people polarized content. No, the machine learning learned over time. That's how I keep people on the platform. And so really, the genie's out of the bottle. Hmm. Pandora's already opened up the box. And the people who made these things don't even fully understand how they work. And so we're just living in the thick of this absolute disaster created by technologists in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So how do we diffuse this, Patrick? What is... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's all very well to say we're being monitored and social media is keeping people angry, which it surely is. But what do we do yeah. about it? Well, I, I, I think as Christians, maybe the first step is to uh, stop living highly online lives. Now, I do a lot of digital media. I have a high value on being engaged in digital spaces. I think there's a missional value. So I'm not saying uh, please don't exist online. However, if you lack real life human community, you are going to become outraged. And here's what I mean when I say that. Let's say you're a Republican and let's say that you don't know any Democrats. You don't, you don't know anybody on the left at all. Well, if you're on social media, you're going to keep getting all this Republican stuff that tells you how evil all the Democrats are. And it's because you don't have real world relationships. If you just knew a handful of Democrats really well, and you respected them, and you understood why they believe what they believe, you wouldn't buy the nonsense that you're reading on social media. Um, and so, so the first thing I just want to say is stop living so much online. Develop deep, deep relationships with the people who are around you. Pray to God, would you please bring someone into my church and into my community who I can build a relationship with, who sees the world differently than I do? I think that's one of the first steps. Uh, I, I think there's lots of other things you can do. You know, A lot of these programs allow you to change uh, how you get content. So like on Twitter, and Instagram, you can make it chronological, which means the algorithm isn't feeding you things. So that's one suggestion I make to people. Another, this is a funny suggestion. I tell people to click on things you're, you're not interested in. That's, that's the real key. Because what you do is you train the AI that you like things you don't like. So for some reason, for example, right now, Twitter thinks I'm, I am a geriatric woman who is really interested in, in Medicare because that's all the ads I get. It's just geriatric women who are trying to get access to, to medical care, which of course I'm not that interested in as a young man. Uh, but I've, I've tried to scramble the algorithm. So that's kind of a funny, ironic way to deal with the problem. Yeah, how can the local church though help rebuild trust in our communities? I think, again, great question. So this goes to the idea of, uh, of social, uh, what, what, what some people or sociologists call social capital. And this is wealth and human relationships. And what people don't realize is that if you want to know what's the number one thing that allows a child who grows up in poverty to rise out of poverty into affluence, 
social capital. That is the single most important thing. And what is a community that has social capital? It's a community where there are thick relationships, where there are lots of institutions. So we're talking about churches and PTAs and Elks clubs and Rotary clubs or whatever it is. There's lots of local institutions that thickly connect people. Those are the places where you are most likely to rise out of poverty. They're also the places with the lowest levels of anxiety, of depression, of crime. And so there are so many social ills that are healed, not by having a cause and going out and protesting, but by creating thick relationships. And this is where the church comes into play. Now, this is especially true in the United States. The singular institution in the United States that has created the most social capital, the most thick relationships is the church. And that's probably true across the West in general. And what makes the church unique is that it's free. (laughs) Now, I know that sounds crazy because what we're beginning to discover, at least in the States, is that there are increasingly these highly secular, highly progressive uh, enclaves of highly wealthy people who who are able to uh, cordon themselves off from the world. They have access to uh, uh, country clubs. They have access to hot yoga. They have access, access to the HOA, to all these things. But to have access to those things, you have to have one thing real capital, financial capital. They don't, they don't allow uh, single moms who can't uh, afford to pay into the country club. They don't let the ex-con who just walked out of prison into the country club. They, they cannot go to those places. And that's what makes the church unique. I always tell people what, what makes my experience unique is that in the same day, I can have breakfast with the CEO of a company. I can have lunch with an ex-drag addict. I can have dinner with an ex-con. And mm-hmm. then we can have a single mom over for desserts. Where else does that happen? Yeah. And see, the church is free. It's the place that creates these thick relationships where people can actually help and love and care for one another. It's the only place that can do this uniquely. And that's why communities that are rich in churches tend to be rich in social capital, which means they tend to have less of these social problems that cause polarization. Mm. Final question to you both, uh, Patrick and Ian. How do we avoid division in our churches over issues like politics? I'll let Ian go first. (laughs) Uh, I I think it's coming from a posture of being for people is my kind of, that's what I trying to help people say is that rather than being against people, which which both sides, I think, are constantly doing, is have a posture of being for people. And so, and when you're, when you're for people, you're willing to listen, you're willing to uphold uh, kind of their human dignity. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that you stand back from what you believe. You, you just, you want to help them see that the gospel actually fulfills uh, the things that they're trying, trying to desire. Uh, as Patrick was just talking about, you know, kind of everyone is seeking the same community that we are, but it's only in the church by Orthodox Christianity, you know, invested in the gospel that can actually ever produce that. And I think that's, that's got to be our standing point is our hope in the gospel, you know, hope in the gospel kind of stri- you know, kind of pushes us to be for people and uphold their dignity. Patrick. I th- yes. No, th- I think that's a fantastic answer. And I would echo everything you said. I, I-, I believe that showing kindness, that, that listening, that admitting when you're wrong are all keys to ending division. I believe that showing radical generosity is a huge key to ending division. One thing we've committed ourselves to as a church is if our church disappeared tomorrow, we hope that everyone in our city would notice. And we pray that they would notice because all the people who are manning the services that care for the refugees, for the poor, for the homeless, for the single moms, for uh, the people who are leaving prison, that that those those would all stop because they all were a part of our church and because we were giving to those things. It's why we've committed ourselves to fighting against medical debt in our community. Our, our church has been very generous to end medical debt in our not just our county, but 33 other counties in our state. The same thing, we've, we've paid off utility debt to make sure that people's utilities weren't paid off. We paid off all of the utility debt 
in our county, in our city. And so these are part of the ways that we show radical generosity. And what we found is that if we just show generosity to people who aren't like us, they, they're, they're amazed. They say, I'm not a Christian. I don't deserve this. And we say, exactly. I didn't deserve it when Jesus loved me. So you're, you're beginning to get <laughs> the key of what the gospel is. And maybe that'd be the other side of it, because you brought up the gospel at the end there as well, Ian. And, and I, I think it's understanding that that one aspect of the gospel is allegiance. That, that, that the Greek word for faith doesn't just mean I give intellectual assent to something. It means that I'm pledging my allegiance to a king. And this is why Jesus was crucified, because he wouldn't give his allegiance to Caesar. That's why the early Christians were crucified and martyred, because they refused to, to praise and worship Jesus as Lord. And we forget that the gospel was a political word. I mean, there was an inscription that was found uh, about Augustus Caesar, the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. It was made in 9 BC in a place called Prien. And it said something to the effect of, this is the gospel or the good news of the birth of Augustus Caesar. And it goes on to describe him as the savior of the world as the bringer of peace, as the Lord, as the son of God. So when a Jewish rabbi walked around uh, Israel, Judah, and announced that he had a different gospel of a different king, who brought a different kind of peace, who was a different kind of Lord, we have to understand this was a radically political statement. And once you understand that, you'll begin to realize, I can't give my allegiance to this party or that party. The kingdom of God is its own party. I don't, I don't need to worry about getting the right guy in the Oval Office or the right guy as prime minister. That, that, that would be a demotion for Jesus. He doesn't need to move into the Oval Office. He's got the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> so he's not worried about those things. And when you begin to get your priorities in order, your allegiances in order, and you begin to see the big picture, I think it just turns down the temperature if you're a Christian on these political debates. Mm. Patrick Miller, the uh, co-author with uh, Keith Simon of Truth Over Tribe, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. Now, Patrick, I haven't written down your publisher. Tell us who <laughs> your publisher is. Our publisher is in Colorado Springs, David C. Cook. Right. Yes, I'm sorry. I normally write these down, but I, I haven't. Oh, you're fantastic. Black mark for me. I'm sorry. There we are. But a fascinating, uh, fascinating book, fascinating read. Now, and tell us where people can find you uh, on the podcast and on social media. Yeah, so you can buy the book at any major bookseller online. Uh, you can find the podcast, Truth Over Tribe. We're not very creative people, so we call our book the same thing as our podcast. It's Truth Over Tribe. And you can find that on any major podcast player. I, I would love to interact with anyone who is listening to this on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Patrick K. Miller underscore. You can find me on there. I'd love to chat with you if you have any questions. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who uh, sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Patrick and my thanks to my co-hosts, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Patrick and Ian, thank you so much, gentlemen. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.